Well, I want to begin this morning uh, with a question. I often do this, I know, but uh, I want to get us all thinking in the same direction. And, and the question is this, how long is forever? Now, it really depends on who you ask. If you've ever had a toddler in your life, even a very short period of time can elicit, oh, this is taking forever, right? Like, even if it's just been a couple of minutes, they can say, it's taking forever. But regardless of your age or whether or not you've gone through a long, boring drive with a toddler, I think we can all agree eternity is a long time. Forever is a really long time, no matter who you ask. And even though it's hard to conceptualize, I, I do think if we go back to our toddler, there is this reality when it comes to forever or time in general, that if we are enjoying what we're doing, it goes by pretty quickly. And if we are not enjoying what we are doing, even a short activity can feel like it's taking forever. It seems like it takes longer when the activity is unpleasant. And so if it's a long, boring drive, it can feel like it's taking forever, even if it's just a couple of hours. And a couple of hours in the scope of eternity is just a hair's breadth, right? Back to our toddler, picking up toys. Parents can say this is taking forever, right? Because toddlers don't just pick up the toy and put it where it belongs. They pick up the toy and they take it to the next toy. And then they set that toy down and they play with this toy for a little while. And then they set that over there and they go find a new toy. Once they do finally put a toy away, they get a different one out. And it can take forever just to put away a few toys, right? What about folding laundry for those of you who are adults? Like, have you ever been folding your laundry and you're like, we don't even own this many clothes. How can we possibly have this much laundry to fold? And it can feel like it's taking forever. Conversely, these pleasant or exciting things do seem to fly by, like a vacation. You know, the week or two leading up to a vacation can literally take forever. And then you're on vacation and it's like, boom, we're back before we even left. It just flies by. Kids growing up, you know, it feels like you just bring them home from the hospital, and next thing you know, you're planning a graduation party, and it just went by that fast. Speaking of those kids, I was reminded on this, we used to, when our kids were young, we'd go on little day trips to different science centers and museums and things like that. And it was always funny because the two-hour drive to the museum took forever and then they could play in the museum, the science center, the children's museum for like eight or nine hours. And when it's time to go, they're like, what, already? We have to go already? You know, like time just has a funny way of doing that. And this sort of sets up what we're going to be talking about today in week two of our new series titled Believing Jesus. We're focusing on the gospel of John in this series and really focusing on the gospel. You're going to hear the gospel a lot in this series. And so this is kind of an encouragement to you. If you have a friend or a family member or a neighbor that you would really like to get into a situation where they're going to hear the gospel on a regular basis, invite them to church over these next few weeks. They're going to hear the gospel. I guarantee you of that. And if you have, maybe don't tell them that you're doing this, but if you have some that are maybe just kind of on the fringes, they say, well, I don't need to go to church. I believe in Jesus. I'm good. Then this series is for them because we're not just stopping at believing in Jesus. We want to really believe Jesus. Our subtitle in this series is taking the Jesus we believe in at his word, really believing Jesus, not just believing in him. We need to do that, but we also need to believe that his way is the best way, that he has our best interest and mind. And to really truly believe that following him opens up 
our best life here and now and also enables us to expand his kingdom in this world and to bring glory and honor to him, which if we believe him and believe in him, those should be at the top of our list of priorities. And so today we're going to talk about eternal life. It's this critically important theme in the Gospel of John that John chapter 3 really introduces us to in John's gospel. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 3. That's where we're going to spend the vast majority of our time this morning. If you need a Bible, we have them in the seats in front of you. You can just grab one from, uh, from the seat down there and open up to page 1649. Now, the context for this chapter is predominantly a conversation between Jesus and we're told a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Now, if you're not familiar with what a Pharisee is, there were a couple of different groups that were sort of the religious leadership for the nation of Israel at the time that Jesus was doing his ministry. One was the Pharisees, the others was the Sadducees. We don't need to get bogged down in all of that today, but you need to know that, that Nicodemus is a religious leader. He's at the top of the heap in Jerusalem, and he is coming to Jesus, we're told, uh, with some questions. And so we're going to pick up in John chapter 3. We're going to read a lot of Scripture. It's kind of hard to split John up into short chunks. He speaks and presents his material about Jesus' life in longer chunks. So I'm going to read and kind of just kind of give you some context as we go through these first 11 verses or so. And then starting in verse 12, we'll slow down and really dig in deep with verses 12 through 21. And we're told in John 3, verse 1, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. Now, just to give you a little, last time we were in John chapter 2, last week, and Jesus had cleansed the temple and, and run off all the all the money changers and, and the people that were trying to profit on religion. And we're told right after that in verse 23 that he did many miraculous signs and wonders that were kind of giving evidence or, or substantiating his ministry. So Nicodemus has seen some of those, and he says, we recognize that, you know, God's with you. You couldn't do all this stuff that you're doing if God wasn't with you. And Jesus kind of cuts to the quick. He doesn't play this pleasantries game. He doesn't respond to this compliment. He just says, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again, which isn't really where Nicodemus was sending the conversation, but Jesus is cutting right to the heart of the matter. And he's introducing this idea of a physical birth and a spiritual birth. And it, John sort of tipped his hand that this was coming in chapter 1, verse 12. We looked at that verse last week when he says that to all who received him, received Jesus, all who believed in his name, he gave right to become children of God. Children not born of a husband's will or born of the natural order of things, but born of God. And so he's talking about a new birth in that setting. Jesus is taking the conversation with Nicodemus there right now. He's saying there's a physical verse, birth, there's also a spiritual birth wherein we become children of God. That gives us a new identity. It gives us a new family lineage. It gives us a new inheritance. And Nicodemus doesn't get it, right? He says, how can a man be born when he's old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. But the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. So he's, he's fleshing this out a little bit more for us. That's a 
that's a pun, fleshing this. Did anybody else get that? Pastoral humor is not an oxymoron. It just seems that way sometimes. But he's, he's driving home the difference between the physical and the spiritual. He's saying flesh does give birth to flesh. You're right about that, Nicodemus. But we're not talking about a second fleshly birth. We're talking about a new birth, a spiritual birth, that you need to be born again. The spirit gives birth to spirit. Our spirit needs to be reborn. And he continues, you should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now, there's an interesting play on words here in the original language as Jesus sort of gives a, an example from the natural world, right? You can experience the wind. You can't see it, but you can feel it. And you can't tell where it's coming from or where it's going necessarily. This was before meteorologists and before these big maps that showed you the jet stream and everything else. Like, they just said, okay, the wind's out of the east today, the wind's out of the west today, the wind's out of the north, out of the south. They could feel it, but they couldn't see it. And so he's drawing a parallel to that. And ironically, in the Greek language, it's the same word. The same word for breath, for wind, for spirit is all pneuma. It's where we get, like, pneumatics. If you're going to control something with air, they call that pneumatics. It's the same thing here. He's saying, you know, the, the Spirit of God is kind of like the wind. You can't quite tell where it's coming from or where it's going, but you can tell when it's around. And that's the point that he is making here. Nicodemus still doesn't get it. He says, how can this be? And Jesus responds, you're Israel's teacher, and do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we've seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. He's saying, there's a bigger issue here. You just don't believe me. That's the problem, Nicodemus. Because we've been telling you these things plainly, and you can't get there. You don't have the faith that you need. And it's interesting, in verse 11, he sort of transitions and opens things up. The first you there in verse 11, when Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it's a singular you. He's talking to Nicodemus. But that second you... When he says, but still you people, it's a plural you. Now he's expanding. He says, this isn't just a Nicodemus problem. This is a Pharisee's problem. This is an Israelite's problem. You don't believe me. And he continues, I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now, there's a lot going on here. But Jesus is now introducing the element of faith in all of this. In verse 12, did you catch that? The word believe shows up twice in verse 12. He's saying, you don't believe. That's the problem. And if you don't believe when I'm talking about physical things that you can understand, that you can see around you, how are you going to understand the heavenly things? How are you going to understand the deeper spiritual truth? And so all of these yous are plural in verse 12 on. He's not just talking about Nicodemus. And he makes this distinction of belief and unbelief even clearer in verses 13 through 15. He continues this heavenly versus earthly distinction. He says no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. He's talking about himself. And then in verse 14, he draws this to something that I believe Nicodemus could understand. He's giving Nicodemus an on-ramp here. He's saying, okay, let's bring it back to what you know. 
You know Numbers 21. You know the story of the snakes in the wilderness and how God told Moses, if you put a bronze snake up on a pole, everyone who looks at it will be saved. But the people that don't look at it won't be saved. Don't miss this. This is so important. As we talk about the distinction between the earthly and the heavenly, the backstory on this is that the people grumbled and complained against God. And they said, we were better off in Egypt. We were better off as slaves. And God wasn't very happy about it. And to sort of nip that in the bud, he sends a plague of snakes to, to, the, to the people. And think about that. Snakes, where do snakes spend most of their time? On the ground, right? It's really freaky when they end up in a tree or something, or God forbid they're flying. Like, you don't want that. But snakes are generally on the ground. And where do you want to pay attention if there's snakes in the, in the area? On the ground. Everybody's looking down. And God's solution to Moses is put a bronze snake up on a pole so that people have to look up. And they have to ignore what's happening right around them. And they have to believe God and believe that God has the solution to the problem, not themselves, and believe that they're not going to avoid the snakes. God's going to deliver them. This is a big deal because you don't want to look up when there's snakes in the area. You don't want to look up when friends and family are dying of snake bites. And yet this is the solution. And Jesus draws the parallel between the earthly and the heavenly and says, you got to believe him, just like they had to believe him. And if you don't believe him, you're going to perish. That, that part's coming. But he, he says, just as the snake was lifted up, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. And there's a dual meaning when he talks about being lifted up for himself, for Jesus. Now, we know what Nicodemus couldn't have known. We know that Jesus was lifted up on a cross and that he died a sinner's death even though he was sinless and that he paid the penalty for all the sins of all the people for all time in that moment that whoever believes in him, whoever looks up at him and believes in him will not perish, just like the snake in the wilderness in Numbers 21. And he makes this really clear in verse 15 when he says, everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And that's the first time that eternal life shows up in the Gospel of John, but it's the first of 17 times that John talks about eternal life or quotes Jesus talking about eternal life. It's a really important subject. And you see belief and eternal life are connected here. That flesh gives birth to flesh, like verse 6 says, spirit gives birth to, birth to spirit. There is a temporary that gives birth to the temporary, and there is an eternal that gives birth to the eternal. That when we believe, when we look up, when we fix our eyes on Jesus, we live, and not just for a little while, we live for eternity. Everyone who believes has eternal life. And that leads into the clearest, most concise statement of the gospel that we have in Scripture. John 3.16, quite possibly the most memorized, recited, repeated passage in all of literature, not just Scripture, but all of literature. When you think of the billions of people that have been memorizing John 3.16 for thousands of years. And it's such a powerful verse because it is this concise statement of the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We're going to talk more about that whoever next week. So if you have a whoever in your life that thinks they're too far gone, that thinks the gospel's not for them, that thinks it's just for other people, invite them to church next Sunday. 
And we're going to talk about the whoever because we see this fleshed out in the next chapter or so. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there just with this clear, concise statement of the gospel. He continues. He says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You see, most of religion had to do with condemning sin at that point. And Jesus is saying that's not God's program as much as it is to save the world through faith in Jesus Christ. And he continues in verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. That beautiful, wonderful, powerful name that we sang about this morning. They haven't believed in that. And right here in these verses, Jesus is saying your belief determines your destiny. Your belief determines your destiny. And this is the gospel. That's also called the good news. That's what the word gospel means. It means good news or a good message. And the good news that Jesus is sharing with Nicodemus is that God loves and God gives. He loves the whole world. He loved the world so much that he gave. He had a self-sacrificial love for the world and he gave. He gave the very best that he had. He gave his one and only son. That's the good news. That's God's part. He's done all the heavy lifting. Our part is that we believe and we live. That's a really good deal. God has done everything apart from our response to what he's done, our belief, and that is what gives us eternal life. And in that good news is this reality that God does not want to condemn. He wants to save. He sent Jesus in order that we could be saved if we believe. If you believe in Jesus, you're not condemned. There's good news after good news after good news in these verses. And I'll say this every week just so nobody gets the idea that just believing in God is sort of this intellectual agreement with some sort of a fact. Belief is to rely upon, cling to, and trust in. When we believe, that belief determines our destiny. And sadly, the lack of belief also determines our destiny. See, there's good news in John 3, 16 through 18, but there's also bad news, isn't there? If you look at this, there's bad news that if you don't believe, you are condemned. You cannot escape that. It's right there in the passage. It's right there in the red letters. But it's also very clear that this breaks God's heart. And I wonder, does it break our hearts as much as it breaks God's heart that there are people dying apart from the good news that God loves them so much that he has given his one and only son that they might be able to come to him? Does it break our heart as much as it breaks God's heart? You see, he went to great lengths to prevent it. He gave the very best that he had to prevent anyone from dying apart from him. Do we go to great lengths? Or do we say, I'm fine. Most of my family's fine. I'm good. I believe in Jesus, they believe in Jesus, we're all, we're all fine. Or do we care about this world and we love this world the way that he loved this world? And do we give the way that he gave? He's still not done. Even though he's given the good news, the bad news, he has a summary statement that's coming. And he brings a conclusion to this topic with Nicodemus in verses 19 through 21. When he says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth 
comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. He's returning to the theme of light and darkness that we talked about last week. In the introduction to this, John established this as a key theme in the Gospel of John when he said things like verse 5 of John chapter 1, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Some translations say the darkness cannot overcome it. Speaking of Jesus, he says the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. And foreshadows what Jesus is saying here, that some people are going to reject that light, that some people are going to choose darkness over light. But here's the important thing that you need to understand from what Jesus is saying here and what John said in John chapter 1, is that light invades darkness, not the other way around. And this is really good news, because light has come into the world through the person of Jesus Christ, and light is to break into the world around us through our lives, if we are followers of Christ, that we would be sort of like mirrors and magnifying glasses that take the light that we have received and disperse it into the world around us, because light invades darkness, not the other way around. A friend of mine shared with me a really simple way to illustrate this. You go home and you find a closet that doesn't have a light on in it, right? You turn the light on in the room and then you open the closet door and you will not see darkness invading the room with the light on, will you? You will see light invading the darkness. And that's what we're to do. We're to open up doors and bring God's light into the world around us through our very lives, that we be become stars in the night sky, right? Paul uses this language in Philippians chapter 2, and he says, you shine like stars in the universe. And stars are these points of light in the darkness surrounding them. That's what we're to be, and to invade those areas of our lives with God's light. Because darkness is only the absence of light. And he's not just talking about salvation here. Now he's talking about holiness, too. He's saying that we're to walk in the light. We're to walk in the truth. Because some people have rejected the light. They've preferred the darkness. And the question then becomes for us, if we are believers in Jesus Christ, do we prefer the light over the darkness? Or do, are there pockets of our life where we are going to tolerate a little bit of darkness? I kinda, I'd, I'd like to keep that area kind of under wraps. Or do we want God's light to flood into every area of our lives so that there are no pockets of darkness. I think that's what Jesus is talking about in verse 21 when he says, whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he does has been done through God. That idea that, that Jesus is full of grace and truth. He is the light that was coming into the world. We come into that light and we don't ever want to leave. And we want to carry that light with us wherever we go. Kind of like the little, this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel? No. I don't know the rest of the song. It's been a while for that one. But, but you get the point that we're not supposed to hide it. We're not supposed to put it out. We're not going to let Satan snuff it out. I remember that line now. This wasn't in my notes. Hopefully it's spirit-led. But the idea that these things, everyone would see this is done by God. That this isn't somebody that's acting on their own accord. This is somebody who is, is acting on God's behalf, is walking in the light and in the truth. Because Jesus was full of grace and truth. And that if the Spirit is within us that he's been talking about, if the Spirit has brought new life into us, then we would be led by the Spirit and keep in step 
with the Spirit. Paul talks about this in the letter to the Galatians. He talks about being crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. That sounds kind of like what John is saying here, what Jesus is saying here in the Gospel of John. And then he says, after he lists the fruit of the Spirit, he says, if we're led by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit so that, like Jesus said, that what he has been done has been done through God. And I think John reflected on this and really sort of brought this into sort of a, a concise statement that he opens the letter that he wrote to the churches in 1 John chapter 1. I don't know if it was, was written sometime after his gospel or around the same time, but there's this really powerful restatement of what Jesus just said in 1 John verses 5 through 7. He says, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. He's saying what Jesus said. He's restating it for us. He's restating it for the church. First John was a letter that was written to the churches and circulated among the churches as they were seeking to understand what does it mean to believe Jesus and to walk in the light. And he's making a statement here. He's making a point here that behaviors reflect belief. That if we say we believe something but our behavior doesn't back that up, it proves that we don't actually believe it. And this can be heavy news to hear but it's good news if it brings us into the light, if it brings the light into the world through our lives. And that's the whole point. That's why he spends time on this. That's why Jesus tells Nicodemus about it, and that's why John tells the churches about it. It's not vice versa. It's not that your beliefs reflect your behaviors. It's that your behaviors reflect your beliefs. And that's what Jesus was saying in John 3, and that's what John's saying in 1 John chapter 1. It's not about earning salvation. Don't take that next step. Sometimes people say that, oh, it's all about behavior. It's all about earning our way. No. What Jesus is saying and what John is saying is that holiness and good works give evidence of our salvation. They give evidence of the presence of saving faith in our lives. That when it works its way into our behaviors, then we really believe it. Then we really believe Jesus and believe that his way is best. Because holiness and good works give evidence of our salvation. That word holiness actually just means set apart for God. That we're set apart for God. That that area of my life is set apart for God. That every area of my life is set apart for God. That process is called sanctification. And that's what Jesus is talking about when he says walking in the truth. And that's what John is talking about when he says walk in the light as he is in the light. Make it a practice of following Jesus. Now, to bring this sort of to a close, to bring this back to the beginning where we started with our toddler and things taking forever, we agreed forever is a long time. And Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about eternity because our eternity matters to God. God knows eternity is a long time, and he wants us there with him, worshiping him forever in eternity. That's why he sent his son into the world, to save us, not to condemn us. God cares about our eternity because eternity is a long time. But ironically, I was thinking about this, it's not going to seem like a long time 
for those of us who believe Jesus, for those of us who have trusted in Christ. We're going to be there, like the song says, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. It's not going to feel like we've been doing it for 10,000 years. It's going to be like, we're just getting started. That's good news. I can't wait. I can't wait. It'll feel like a, you know, like a vacation or something you really enjoy. It's over before you begin it. But here's the good thing. It's eternity. It's not going to be over. It's never going to end. We're going to be there forever doing that forever. But on the converse, on the flip side, for those who are not in Christ, even though forever is really, it's going to seem even longer for them because it's going to be as unpleasant as anything we can imagine here on earth. There's a line in the Chronicles of Narnia, in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, right before, right, right as they get into Narnia and before Aslan, the Christ figure, returns. Somebody says, well, it's always winter and never Christmas. You know, it's kind of like you think about that and you're like, well, Christmas is kind of what makes winter worth putting up with, right? Can you imagine a hundred years of winter with no Christmases, no joy, no, no life, no celebration? That's like this tiniest little sliver of what hell will be like in the eternity separated from God with conscious torment and deep regret because they chose to reject the good news of salvation. They chose the darkness over the light. And so here's the bottom line. You've already heard it. It just wasn't identified as the bottom line. It was what I said before John 3.16 that your belief in Jesus determines your destiny. Your belief in Jesus determines your destiny, not your behavior, not the things you've merely said, not your pedigree spiritually, but who your mom or dad or father, grandfather was, not your thoughts or your feelings. It's your belief. It's your rely upon, cling to, trust in, faith in God. When you believe in him entirely, you hold nothing back. There's no plan B. You are all in. That's what determines your destiny. And I have shared a progression before of curious, convinced, committed. This was a big part of my coming to faith in Christ. And I recognize that there are people maybe listening in this room or listening online or listening at some point in the future, and you're curious, and that's why you've taken the time to listen this long. You want to know more about spiritual truth. You don't want to be on the wrong side of eternity. You're gaining information. That's the first step. People are curious. Then they become convinced. And I spent a lot of time being convinced that Jesus was who he said he was, but I never made a commitment. I never believed him. I just sort of agreed and there are people today that are listening to this that are convinced that Jesus is who he said he is. It's all true, but they've never made a commitment. They've never relied upon, clung to, and trusted in Jesus and Jesus alone. That's committed. And that's where he is hoping and praying that each and every one of us will get and that scores of people will get through our lives as we walk in the light, as we walk in the truth. And this is why this matters so much. It's not just your belief in Jesus determines your destiny. It's your eternal destiny. Not just your temporary destiny here on earth, but your eternal destiny. I had a seminary professor, first, first moment in her class, the first thing she stood up and said in New Testament 1, so we're talking all about the Gospels and Acts. She says, what you believe about Jesus 
is the most important thing about you. And she's absolutely right. Nothing else even holds a candle to that. What you believe about Jesus is the most important thing about you. And so I wonder, what do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe Jesus? Do you believe everything he said? You believe it's all true and you want to walk in the light of his truth. You want to walk in his truth. You want his light to invade your life and invade this world through your life. Does your life bear witness to what you say you believe? Does everyone know? Ah, that's a believer right there. That's a believer's believer. That's, that's somebody who's walking in the truth or walking in the light, not in a phony artificial way, but in a sincere, genuine way. Because that's the goal, is an army of followers, an army of ambassadors for Christ that everybody knows that person's walking in the truth. I may not agree with it, but you can't deny that that person is walking in the truth, that that person is walking in the light. And if it doesn't, don't let Satan come in with shame. You are not your behavior. You might do bad things, but shame says you are bad because of that. That's not how the gospel works. The gospel says you are worth dying for. Come into the light. Live in the light. Stay in the light. Don't leave the light. And this book is full of light and life. Studying this book, bringing that light into your life, applying that truth into your life is how we get closer to God, how we get closer to Jesus. We spend time in prayer. We spend time in fellowship with other believers. These things matter. They are crucial. They're essential. And so if you're not regularly studying God's word in fellowship with other believers, then I have an invitation for you. Join one of our Banding Together groups. It's as simple as putting Banding Together group on your connection card. We'll help you get connected to one. If those don't work for you, we've got Sunday school classes. We've got Bible study fellowship for women in this building on Wednesday mornings. There's Bible study fellowship for men in our community. There's community Bible studies. There's lots of places where you can study God's word in community with other people and be transformed from the inside out so that you're walking in the truth and you're walking in the light and that light is invading this world through your life. That's the vision that Jesus cast 2,000 years ago. And it's the vision that we're called to as we reach people for Christ, give them a place to belong and help them grow in their faith. That's what we're talking about for each and every one of us and for each and every one out there. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are thankful that you love us so much, that you care so much about our eternity, that you want us to be with you forever. And that you want all those things so much that you came. You didn't just sit back and say, I hope they figure this out someday. You came. You lived that perfect, sinless life. Jesus, you died a horrible, gruesome death on a cross for us. You took the penalty that each of us deserved. And you took it upon yourself. So that if we will believe, if we will turn control of our life over to you and choose to walk in your truth and to live in your truth, that we can be with you forever. So I pray for the one that's hearing this and is feeling something well up within them and saying, I, I'm not there. I need to be there. I want to be there. 
May they pray a, a simple yet deeply profound and meaningful prayer that goes something like this. Lord Jesus, I see it now. I get it. You are the way, the truth, and the life. I confess that I have sinned and that that sin will separate you from me for eternity. But I know you don't want that and I don't want that either. So I confess my sin. I ask you to forgive it. I pray that we can begin a relationship that will lead me into your truth, into your light, and lead others into your truth through my life. For those of us who have been believers for some time, Lord, may we be ever more intentional about walking in the light, walking in the truth, that others may see that light through us and hear that truth through our lives. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.